Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of the Elevate podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to share four interviews today from people featured in the Friday Forward book, including Hal Elrod and Mira Ko, Sean Swarner, and Don DePane. These are four of the most popular stories, four great interviews, and uh, I know you will learn a lot, so please enjoy. Joining me now is Hal Elrod, who's featured in the story Early Riser on page 50 of Friday Forward. How's the author of The Miracle Morning, where he created and shared a morning routine that is practiced by over half a million people worldwide. He's also one of the highest ranked keynote speakers in America and hosted the highly acclaimed Achieve Your Goals podcast. Thank you for joining us, Hal. Robert, always a pleasure, man. All right. So we know that your savers routine is obviously the bedrock of your life, but I'm curious, how did you spend your mornings before the routine? Uh, before the routine, I it was wake up, hit the snooze button a few times, and then go straight into my office and just start, you know, uh, either into work or maybe maybe you know check in social media. Um, but I think it was like the average person's you know morning routine, um, where you just you kind of wake up and you dive into some sort of distraction, whatever it may be. So you had no, there was no repetition to it uh, at all, like totally totally different every day. Totally different. No consistent personal development, no consistent reading. I was very, you know, I, I owned a lot of books, didn't read a lot of books kind of thing. And you get up, you said you, you, you set your alarm and hit snooze. Was that at the same time every day or just whenever you needed to be up? Yeah, no, I think I had the snooze button. I think I was set. I was up at 6 a.m. with the alarm set repetitively. And then I would just snooze until I felt like, you know, I had to get up. So you talk a lot about your personal savers routine. I'm curious, what, is it, what does it look like today? And are there any changes or expansions you've actually made to it since the book came out or over time? Or is it like the same thing you've been doing the whole time? You know, I change it up a lot. And that's one thing I love about the savers is that it's, you know, it's completely customizable, scalable, adjustable, right? And yeah. so I, um, so a few things. Number one, I don't set an alarm anymore which is unique, right? Once I got cancer, I decided that I should let my body, like you know, number one priority is I got to stay alive for my kids kind of thing. And yeah. so it was like, let's let my body sleep as long as it needs to and kind of see where it, where it lands. And uh, seven hours is, is typically what my body will sleep for. And I usually uh, in bed by 1030 and my body wakes me up either sometime between 430 and 530, but usually it's right around 530. So seven hours seems to be the, the sweet spot. Um, and I encourage people to do that now, which I never even thought of before. I say, look, see, they go, how many hours of sleep do I need, Hal? I go, you got to figure that out. I said, just take weekends and don't set your alarm on the weekends and see when your body wakes you up and then practice on the weekends. Once you get confident that you will, you can wake up consistently at that time without an alarm, um, okay. then you can go without setting it during the week. And then far as the savers go, um, they're very loose for me now. My whole life is a lot less like rigid, I, I would say. Um, I, now I'm okay to just take a day off and be with family. And, you know, I was a workaholic before I had cancer for sure. But, uh, but in terms of the savers, um, I kind of wake up and intuitively go with the ones I feel like. And, um, you know, meditation and reading or, and exercise are the, the main three that I tend to do every day. And then visualization, 
journaling. Uh, actually, I guess I do affirmations every day. So visualization and journaling are the two that I yeah. kind of do as needed, which is probably three to four days, about half the week. And is there any order or do you mix up the order? Um, it, yeah, I kind of mix it up. Uh, I, I tend to try to do uh, meditation and then reading and then exercise. Uh, exercise is almost always last because my exercise routine right now in the past, it's been running, it's been yoga. Uh, right now it's biking. And, uh, and when I say biking, that sounds like I'm, I'm doing hardcore mountain biking. I just, I just cruise around my neighborhood for 10 <laughs> okay. minutes, yeah. looking at nature, breathing in fresh air, just really feeling grateful. And uh, that's really key that the nature part of the exercise is as important to me as the exercise, just being outside. And so um, and so I always do that once the sun rises, which is usually on, you know, right around 7 a.m. And so I tend to do meditation uh, and then into reading. But some mornings I wake up and I just don't feel like meditating. So I just open up a book and I just start reading, you know. So, uh, yeah, it just kind of depends. Again, just kind of going with the flow and intuitively um, seeing what I feel like. But I do think it's important to touch on the structure of the savers. If I wouldn't have followed that to a T for really quite a few years, yeah. uh, I don't think I would, you know, I would have the freedom that I have now to play with it. I think that if you start without that structure, I think you really miss out on a lot of the benefit. And, you know, I encourage people when they start their Miracle Morning 30 Day Challenge, follow the savers to a T for 30 days and then play with it. And maybe and you, you know, then you earn the right to, to yeah, to yeah earn the right. Yeah. For that <laughs> flexibility. I always had a question on this on exercise. Is that um, is that like a sample of exercise, or is that your full workout for the day, or whatever you do? Do you do something else later? Or people who like to work out maybe in the afternoon or otherwise, do you recommend they just do something early on? Something in the morning, yeah. and that doesn't have to be your full workout. I, I do weights later in the day. Okay, uh, but for you know, and when I when I teach the savers, I go look. Exercise is the E in savers, right? Yeah. I say um, that doesn't mean that you you have to do your full and only workout in the morning. Like if you go to the gym, for example, that you have to all of a sudden do that first thing in the morning. It's the idea that when you exercise the benefits, in fact, Robin Sharma said this in the miracle morning documentary, he said the benefits last up to 13 hours afterwards. Yeah. Right. So when you exercise first thing in the morning, you get blood and oxygen to your brain. You think clear, you have more discipline, you have better decision-making, right? You have more energy that generates and lasts throughout the day. So to exercise in the morning for just at least five or 10 minutes minimum, right? Just could be some jumping jacks. For me, it's the bike ride. It doesn't feel like effort. It's just fun, right? right? Just get, um, get, yeah, get so the blood pumping. Yeah, so it's crucial to do a little bit in the morning. What'd you say? So it gets the blood pumping. That's right. And I'm sure many people have reflexively told you there's no way this routine will work for them. Um, what, what are the most common reasons people push back <laughs> against the, the savers routine and what, how, how do you respond to the, the those, uh, most, most common objections? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that it's, it's become a word of mouth phenomenon kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like when I was in the hospital fighting cancer for a year, the miracle morning sold more copies than ever before. Oh. And I, I wasn't promote, no one was promoting it except for the people that were doing it. It was really impacting their life. And then they're like, dude, you got to read this. You got to do this. You got to try this. So it's almost like I don't have to do much convincing because friends are convincing each other and family members kind of thing. But the biggest objection in terms of the, I'm not a morning person objection, right? That's the biggest, I think. And that was my biggest fear when I wrote the book. I kept going, like banging my head against a wall going, how, how am I going to convince someone that 
for their entire life has adhered to the belief, I'm not a morning person, I don't like waking up early, how am I gonna convince them to get over that? And okay. I really struggled with that writing the book, and I was asked a question a couple of years ago, somebody interviewed me and they said, Hal, I'm really curious, what percentage of you know, these Miracle Morning practitioners, which is now over a million, I think, I mean, the book wow. sold two and a half million copies, they said, what percentage of them were already morning people you know, they had no problem waking up early. It's just that they were checking email or their phone or Facebook. So now they're going, okay, you convinced me that instead of doing that, I'm going to do the, the savers, right? Yeah. They said, but then what percentage were like hardcore, I'm not a morning person, never been one, tried, failed, don't want to be, right? And I had no idea. And so we surveyed our community, which at that time was probably right over 100,000. And um, I, was, I was really, I really didn't know the answer. And I was pleasantly surprised that 72% of Miracle Morning practitioners said they had never in their life been a morning person before they read the book. And, and I, I think that part of it is in the book, there's an entire chapter that I, it's a pretty short chapter, but I address like, okay, if you've never been a morning person, here's how you beat the snooze button, right? And there's some psychological strategies in there. And there's also some logistical ones, like moving your alarm clock all the way across the room. So you have to get out of bed, turn it off. And when you do that, you're 10 times more awake than if you're reaching over to your bedside table, hitting the snooze button. Right. No, and so, you know, also last question for you in terms of thinking about leaders and companies, like what are things that leaders can do in organizations to just encourage better morning routines among their employees? I mean, I think it's leading by example, first and foremost, you know, almost every- <laughs> do, do as I say, not, not, not as I do, doesn't, doesn't work that well. Yeah, yeah I don't think, <laughs> not, not as much, right? I, mean, I think enthusiasm is contagious. The reason yeah. Miracle Morning, I was able to spread it when I was promoting it early on is I genuinely like, I, it changed my life, right? It wasn't a book idea. It was, it was a thing I did in my life. It changed my life. It started changing other people's lives. And then I was enthusiastic. And Every speech that I give, that I've given for the last, how many years since the book, eight years since the book came out, is a leader who read the book, started practicing it, changed their life, and then they're like, you have to come teach us to our people. And at the end of every speech, I invite people to just do a 30-day Miracle Morning Challenge. And so, and it's, it's extremely effective. I have leaders email me later like, hey, we're doing it as a team. We set up a little Facebook group, you know, on and on. And so without needing me to come give a speech to your group to, to encourage them to do that, you just get, hey, guys, I did this Miracle Morning thing. Everybody, we're going to do a, a 30 day, we're going to do a book challenge, right? It could be a book of the month club, whatever. And I think you should, by the way, as a leader, when I used to coach uh, leaders, I would always say, you should have a book of the month club. You should have personal development as, a, as one of the cornerstones of your company or your organizational culture, right? Yeah. And you guys should be growing together every single month. And so I think that's a, it's a great first book because it sets the tone. Now they've got time to do their reading for all the future books. But I think doing that, having, having a book of the month club, doing a 30-day challenge with your people after you've done it yourself and you can come back and go, here's how my life changed in 30 days of doing the Miracle Morning. We're going to read the book together and then we're going to do the 30-day challenge together. And I think that's the best strategy to go about it. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. 
Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Hal. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the Miracle Morning. Uh, everyone, page 50, story on early riser. You can learn more about Hal and Savers, or you can check out Miracle Morning. You can find it online. He's built a, a massive community. So, Hal, thanks for joining us at the uh, global launch of Friday Ford. Uh, congratulations on the book, brother. I'm proud of you. Thank you. All right, I'm excited to be joined by Anne Mirako, who's featured in the story World Class, page 55 on Friday Ford. Anne's the co-founding partner of Floodgate, one of the world's top VC firms, and was named one of New York Times' top 20 venture capitalists worldwide. She's also a lecturer at Stanford, a member of Yale's Board of Trustees, and the founder of All Raise, a nonprofit dedicated to improving diversity in funders and founders. Thanks for joining us, Anne. Thank you for having me. All right. So can you share the story of the conversation that you had with your dad on the way to that first day of your internship at Yale? And, and, and what did you do differently after that conversation? Yeah. And so just to set the context, this was part of my work study. So my financial aid package at Yale involved uh, having to work a number of hours uh, somewhere on campus. And I had found this job um, doing office work for the dean of engineering at Yale and what was what was interesting about that was this is back before the internet was really sort of this was, robust. This was, this was paper pushing, right? I this mean, this is was, paper pushing. Yeah. It's photocopying. It was literate. When we say filing, it means that there was actually a big filing Files, cabinet yes. <laughs> with folders that were hanging, and you would physically put paper into these these folders, um, which just sort of dates me. Um, but but that was the job, and. I had told my dad that I had found this job and my, my dad's thing throughout my childhood and into adulthood uh, was always asking me, we'll do a world-class job. And was that world-class? And, and in that conversation, he said, well, remember, like, be world-class at this job. 
And I remember kind of rolling my eyes as a typical teenager would do. I said, you know, dad, it's not that kind of job. It's, it's not working for the dean of engineering. It's, it's filing. I don't think I'll even see him. And he's like, but just think of it anyway. And so uh, I got to the job and there was this uh, executive assistant, Sarah Scubis was there and she welcomed me. And the first job I had was to photocopy a stack of papers. And it was making uh, photocopies for a meeting that was going to be held that day. You had to photocopy them and then staple them together. And so uh, I remember standing in front of this photocopy machine and the words that my dad said, like, make this world class, inevitably floats into my head. And I'm thinking, you know, how in the world do you make this kind of job world class? And so I decided, well, you know, photocopy can sometimes be not, not particularly straight and then becomes obvious as a photocopy. Uh, you want it to be like really crisp. Uh, when you staple it, you want like the staple to be perfectly in line or at least like exactly at that diagonal so someone can fold it over. Um, and so I remember like sitting there and this wasn't one of those fancy photocopy machines that auto collates everything. I would get everything put together, stack it, staple it. And I put a lot of care into that effort. Um, and this job continued for, for basically all four years I was in college. And it was accumulation of these experiences uh, that was so important for me. Uh, There's no job that was below me. You know, it, it, everything yeah. was anything that someone asked me to do, I would say, of course. And then it was that mentality of if you're world class at this, you would you would be exceptional at this one thing right now. And, and I talk about this in the story, but that led to you being asked to give a tour to a guy named Lou. You didn't realize he was Lou Platt, the the, the CEO of HP, and 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 I'll let, let people read the rest of the story. But he he became a crucial influence in your career. How, how yeah. did that single encounter have kind of a lifelong impact for you? Yeah, I think it's a. Uh... It's an interesting thing that a, a short encounter, and by short, it was, it was basically a week out of my life. It was short, could but be world so, class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so game-changing, right? And, and I think a lot of people of influence might, might think that they can have influence, and, but it has to be over this long period of time. Uh, but I was always struck by how, uh, first of all, like the CEO of a Fortune hundred company notices basically a nobody, right? I had nothing to offer. I was a junior in college. My, my dad is a research scientist at NASA, 30 year career there. My mom is a homemaker. It's not like I have you know, networks or influence in any sphere. And he notices this literal, literal nobody and decides to, to, to give me this opportunity but the pictures that I have on my wall in my office from, from that encounter, which shows Bill Gates sitting in exactly the same spot I was, taught me a few things. So, so one was, you know, notice those people. And as you, as you grow in your own personal career and you, you have new opportunities, uh, make sure you notice the people who are around you who might benefit from that. Uh, and I think 
that that to me is real mentorship because yeah. it's it's seeing the potential in someone before they even see it too. Um, and and championing championing someone not because they have lots of champions, but because they don't. Uh, and so that that's one element of that encounter that's really sort of stayed with me. A second piece is just true leadership. Um, Lou Platt drove around in a Ford Taurus. He didn't have a driver. He didn't have a black car, no personal jet. He just drove around um, celebrating his employees. Uh, he didn't have a corner office. He had basically a cubicle in the middle of this gigantic executive suite. Uh, just the most humble human being. And then the last piece that that really has stayed with me is, is just like, for me, the, the personal impact was the fact that he saw something in me before I even noticed it, the fact that he would, he would imply like, you sat in the same place as Bill Gates, you can, you can do this. It changed actually the course of how I thought about myself and therefore what, my, what the capacity of my dreams might be. Yeah, I mean, you think about this in contrast to today, like it's so easy to lift someone up versus trying to tear them down, which is what, <laughs> fortunately, what social media has, has, has become for a lot of us and just yeah. what that one gesture meant to your whole career. Yeah, it's truly life-changing and, and I don't even know if he knew what it was and what it meant. Now I want to ask you the opposite. Since you've made such a career <laughs> and a platform of doing world-class, What's something you can remember where you kind of mailed it in and, and, and what was the, you know, you didn't give your best and, and the outcome wasn't what you yeah. wanted it to be. <laughs> There's probably too many examples of that, but here, here's one sort of that really stays with me. Um, so I, I'm naturally pretty good at winging it. And so uh, especially with public speaking, I can sort of get up on stage or teach a class uh, without a ton of preparation, if I really had to. And I remember um, as I was getting started in my teaching career, uh, there was a mentor of mine who teaches at the School of Business, and he used to be a CEO of a company. And he told me, you know, Anne, for every lecture, I prepare four or five hours. And I remember I I've watched him uh, give these lectures. This is Mark Leslie. Uh, he does this incredible class on sales. And, and I remember thinking to myself, that's, that's why those classes are so great. But there have been times, and there's one, one lecture that I really remember um, that I was giving, I was just super busy. My kids were all over me. And I just said, you know, it's, it's all right. Like I can pull some of these slides together and I will, I will have it ready. And, and I remember the, the very vividly walking into the class, knowing that I wasn't a hundred percent prepared and knowing that there were some slides I had barely like looked at. I had just sort of pulled it together that I hadn't really thought through tightly what the story would be, what questions I wanted to ask. And to be honest, there have been times where it's been perfectly fine. Yeah, got away with it. <laughs> but, but if you know, like, if you know what it feels like when you have prepared 
and like you know that the class is gelling and the students are engaged and they they know that you prepared you know all of the details and then you're comparing it to this situation where someone's asked you a question you realize like oh, one of your slides doesn't totally make sense or you haven't thought about the thing that the student has asked you and you know the students i'm teaching they're so smart they can smell it and this class in particular just started to go downhill and i'm like sweating and i can feel sort of the it's not even the animosity yeah. of the students but they they just know right and and i felt so terrible during the class but then probably for the week afterwards, it was like every time I would think about that class, I would get a huge knot in my stomach because I knew, I knew everyone else knew and I knew I knew. Um, and did you say something to the class? You know, I said something <laughs> to some of the students because okay. some of the students actually came and they were asking these questions. And I said, you know, I have to admit, like, that class was, like, one of the worst classes that I've taught. Um, and it's hard for me to say, like, I totally learned the lesson never happened again. Uh, it's never happened to that degree. Yeah. Um, but but it's, it's such a stark difference. Like, yesterday, I had this session where I had really prepared. And the feeling is, by the end, like, I'm even more energetic. It was like a two-hour session. By the end, like I came out, like I'm on Zoom, right? Which is like the least energy yeah. filling medium. And yet I came out of my office in my house and I saw my kids and we're about to eat dinner. And I was like nailed excited. It. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew I had nailed it. And there's nothing that feels like that, especially when you know when you haven't nailed it and you know everyone else knows. So, so that leads to my last question, like, you know, for, for having built a career, you know, doing everything at a high level, it's got to take a lot of mental effort and capacity. Like, how do you get yourself in the right mindset <laughs> to, to always do that, even if you don't want to? I, I think it's, it's the key is actually not having to do it in every sphere of your life. Yeah. So I, whereas my dad used to say this was like every single homework assignment, you kind of need to know where you can slack off. Where you can be bad. Yeah, this is Fran Fry's thing. Great speech on, on being bad to be good. Yeah. So I'll tell you where I'm not world-class. <laughs> I am not world-class at picking up after myself. And I probably think about that sometimes. I'm not world-class at clean, cleaning up all my dishes. Um, I, I try to instill that that into my children. And I hope that they will be world-class at it. Um but I also really like that points to something, which is it, it shouldn't always be on you to be world-class at everything because in everything, it's a team sport, right? Whether it's in my work, I have a team that is world-class at a lot of the things that they do. And a great example of that is my, my CFO. Um, she is phenomenal at being a CFO. And I remember when I first joined Mike to be a two-person team, he handed off all this stuff to me. And he's like, this will really be good for you to understand. You are now kind of like the COO of our firm and you will run audit and you will interface uh, with our back office, which basically meant I was the CFO 
I was a horrible CFO. And like the minute that I could actually offload that to someone who was professional and trust that they would be world-class at it, that was great, right? And so to me, it's like, even within our small household, like I counted my husband to be world-class at doing his own laundry, um, you know, and I, I count on my kids to be world-class at the, the chores that they do because if you feel like you have to do it in every single element of your life, that's, that's impossible. And then you have to figure out where does it count, right? Yeah. That next lecture that I'm doing, it matters. Uh, you know, this conversation for me, that, that really matters. Uh, when I'm engaged in a conversation with the CEO of a company, it matters. But, you know, there's a lot of other things where it doesn't matter. I'm horrible at gardening. Our tomato plants have died. And in fact, mint, which is apparently a weed, has been killed multiple times in our garden, right? And so where are the places that I want to put my mental energy and high expectations versus where am I totally fine being completely sub-world-class uh, you want to be intentional about it, Absolutely. but at the same time, you got to cut yourself some slack. All right. Well, Anne, your, uh, your world-class standard gives us all something to, to strive for. So if you haven't read uh, Anne's story, it's called world-class. It's in the Friday Ford book. Um, check it out. And thank you very much for uh, joining the launch event. Thank you. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey everyone, next up, I'm really excited to be joined by Don DePane, who is featured in the story Energy Vampires on page 115. I have it right here, although you can't, probably can't see it, uh, of Friday Ford. Dandapani is a Hindu priest and entrepreneur who also studied as a monk for 10 years. Now he teaches people around the world to live more focused, purposeful lives, speaking to international audiences and coaching leaders from companies like Nike and Trivago. He also delivered a TEDx talk called Unwavering Focus, which has millions of views. Uh, welcome, Dandapani. Thank you, Bob. 
How are you doing? I'm good. Congratulations uh, on the book. Thank you. Uh, it's been it's been a little bit of a of a whirlwind, but I'm 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 excited to share these stories and particularly this one, which you really helped me with. So let, let's start at the top for people who this concept is new. So what what is an energy vampire, and how do, how does it or they impact us? Yeah, so an energy vampire would be you could define as someone who you know after you spend a little bit of time with them and you walk away, you feel drained, right? And yeah. but the you know, they, and, and it really depends on how much you encounter, right? If you, if you go to the store and you're buying a cup of coffee and the person selling you a coffee is, is a jerk, yeah. you know, and maybe it's a one-time experience, but, you know, if it's your neighbor, if it's someone at work that you see every single day, then the impact could be greater on you, right? So it really comes down to the frequency of the interaction with that person. And, and just sort of elaborating on that, what I've heard you talk about, what is the difference between someone who is temporarily an, an, an energy vampire and more, more of a permanent energy vampire? Yeah, I, temporary, what you would say is, you know, I'm having a cranky day, <laughs> right? And you call me up, I'm chatting with you, and you go like, damn, this guy's cranky today. And you hang up and you don't feel good about it. But you know that's not who I am. Um, yeah. You know, on a regular day, I'm okay. So that would be someone who's temporary, and temporary could also be longer, right? So you know, Joe's dad could be dying of cancer, and for about a year or two years, you know, he's pretty down. But he's a close friend, and every time you meet him, he's heavy, a lot of emotions. What do you do? You support him, right? That's what friends do. But uh, someone who's in permanently in an energy vampire, someone who's just been a real pain in the butt. Yeah, uh, for the last 10, 20, 30 years. It's not going to change. <laughs> no, it's not going to change. And, and they're not also trying to change. They don't yeah. really want to change. And that's the other thing. And I think a lot of people think that everybody's wanting to grow and change and be better. It, it's not the case. Some people are happy just being unhappy, miserable people. So, so, so once people have identified these energy vampires in their life, and this was an area that really helped me with five years ago, mm-hmm. um, in terms of detaching from them. I think there is this misperception that you need to have these kind of big breakup, blow up kind of interventions. But I, I know you shared some of the tactics that, that you use and sort of how you look at that a different way in terms of how to begin to sort of steer clear. So can you talk about some of the things? Uh, I, I remember even you even said like, you know, asking people how they are when you knew how they were going to respond and, and sort of how you just yeah. start, start that process. Yeah, I would say, you know, the, uh, you definitely don't want to go the big blowout route unless you, you want to get on a Ricky Lake show or something like that. Yeah. And smash chess on the stage. That's not still on TV, is it? I, I hope not. <laughs> I'm impressed that you know that. I know. So what I think I it used to be on TV in, in Australia when I was growing up. Oh, okay. Two, three decades ago. God knows how long that is. But, um, but, you know, it was fascinating living outside of America, watching American TV, people going on a show, fighting, you know. Yeah. Like, throwing all the dirty laundry out in public and um so it's like wow that's america you know uh i mean but uh so in terms of you know detaching uh, th- there's really no one solution and i think that's the biggest point i do want to make is that there's no one solution that fits everything right it, this is something it, it's really a case-by-case basis as opposed to me teaching someone how to concentrate you know yeah. and tell people like here follow these steps but when it comes to energy vampires, it just really varies because there's just so many factors, right? The person could be a spouse, a child could be an energy vampire. I mean, a toddler, a baby is an energy <laughs> vampire. 
just suck the life out of you. But what do you do? You have a child and it's, uh, yeah. it's a necessary evil, you know, and you love the child, but it's just how it is. So uh, I, I would say, you know, depending on the case, but the first step really is to, to begin a process of really intelligently detaching from that person. You know, if you know that every time you ask someone how are you, they start to unfold a 15-minute, 20-minute long story of their drama, yeah. don't ask how are you. You're not <laughs> obliged to ask anybody how are you. And if someone asks you how are you, you're not obliged to ask them back how are you. You can say, I'm fine, thank you. What a beautiful day, you know, and wherever you are. And, and that's okay. And I think you can be sincere and detached at the same time. And you can also be kind and detached and loving and detached. And I think as you learn to navigate your conversation, what you say to people, how you say it, and be more thoughtful about yeah. what your, your interactions, it makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, another example I give is like at the end of a conversation, people always say like, oh, it was a pleasure meeting you. It was good to see you again, Bob. Uh, no, actually it wasn't, you know. <laughs> let's have lunch. Why? I'll call right. you. Please don't, you know? And we, we say things we don't mean. We just say it because that's what we're used to saying. Yeah. And these I, pleasantries get us into these commitments that we don't want. Right. right because you say, yeah. yep. You know, like, Hey, let's catch up. You, you just say it as a default, right? It's yeah. a habit pattern. And you say, let's catch up. And they go, yeah, that would be nice. Uh, what are you doing next week? And I'm like, uh, not hanging out with you. <laughs> Uh, so I've become very conscious of what I say, and especially in the work that I do, right? I travel around the world. I speak. People come up to me before talks, during the break. Yeah. You know, I had somebody follow me into a toilet, a guy, you know, I'm getting hit into the urinal and he's still chatting with me. And I'm <laughs> like, dude, can you give me like a minute yeah. here? You know? <laughs> and so you just have to come up with, you know, one, one thing you could do is really ask yourself, you know, what are the, who are the people that are taking energy away from you? And what are the scenarios? They, they tend to be repetitive. Yeah. Because these are the energy vampires are the people that don't actually do anything about their problems. And hence, they're an energy vampire. Yeah. Right? So because they don't do anything about their problems, and it's all part of the instinctive mind, and it's also tied deeply with the subconscious, uh, things tend to be quite repetitive. So in the way, the little trigger things that if you ask them a certain thing or you say a certain thing, it'll just open yeah. Pandora's box. So you just have to be super conscious of that. You go to work and a colleague might be an energy vampire, right? Yeah. So how do you navigate that? You just have to be really, really intelligent about it. You know, don't, when they're going to get coffee, you don't go get coffee. Right? Starts with awareness, it sounds like. Yes, being totally observant of the situation, being really aware of what's going on and then being very, very strategic about how you interact with them, what you ask, how you respond and I always say, you know, be an Indian call center. You know, you you have standard. You, you can smile. I, I'm <laughs> aging, I guess. <laughs> you know, have standard responses prepared. Yeah. So, like, I travel and I speak, and I get asked questions all the time. I I used to get caught off guard. People go like, "Oh, can I email you?" And I'm like, "Uh, uh okay, I suppose." You yeah. know, and then no, I give them my email, answer. and then they go like, "Oh my God, why did I give them my email yeah. address?" So I've learned to come up, you know, I, I've identified the, the types of questions that I get, right? The repetitive yeah. ones. And then I've come up with answers. 
the same way, like you call the call center and you ask them a question, yeah. they give you the same response yeah. every single time. No matter what the question is, they've got a list of certain responses. And so I think if you take that approach uh, and, and you don't have to be a jerk towards them, right? Even if someone is an energy vampire, you, you, I, for me, the, the non-negotiable rule is, is not hurting anybody. And, and that is super critical. No, don't hurt. You can be polite. You know, you, you, there was a monk that said this to me once a long time ago. You can tell them to go to hell in such a way they enjoy the journey. <laughs> <laughs> Easier said than done. You said the word lovingly detached. So, so I yeah. mean, that immediately goes to sort of yeah. family or affectionately detached. Like, what does that look like in reality for people? Again, you know, depending on a situation. So, for example, uh, I'm walking down the street. I see Joe walking towards me. I know he's an inherent permanent energy vampire. He sees me, I see him. I could cross the street. That wouldn't be very nice. It would be pretty awkward. So he sees me, I see him, we greet each other. He goes, how are you? I say, I'm fine, thank you. I don't ask him how he is. I go like, what a beautiful day. Yeah. And then I can say to him, uh, you know, please excuse me. I've, I need to get to somewhere urgently. I have something urgent to do. In my case, it's true because right. I have so many things I want to do and I only have a finite amount of life. So I got to get to things, right? And then at the end of the conversation, just him, you know, have a lovely day. Right. So when you, say I was going to say, or it's good to see you. Not we should catch up, right? That, that, no, yeah. and it's not even good to see you, right? Because it really wasn't good to see him. You know, nothing. About I guess that's me. authentic, right? Have a good day. Yeah. Right. So the the key yeah. is, you know, the certain rules. I feel like we should try and follow as much as well. Don't hurt anybody. Try to be as sincere as possible. Yeah. Right. You know, and you can if you prepare. Right. Then you don't have to lie. In the sense that, you know, if you prepare, like if I ever meet an energy vampire, when I leave them, I'll say, have a lovely day. And I truly mean, if he's an energy vampire, I really does. I really yeah. do hope he has a lovely day. But I don't want to say it was lovely to see you. You know, let's catch up. You know, how's good. your family? I don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That, that's a good tip. And right. If you, uh, right, you're just, you're just being authentic. All right. So, so last question, flipping yeah. it. How, how can we identify, and so maybe so we can avoid when we might be coming an energy vampire to other people? So in the self-awareness spectrum, like what's yeah. a good sign that we, we, we may be that person for someone else? People don't want to spend time with you. Yeah. You reach out to me and say like, hey, do you want to grab a cup of coffee? I'm like, I, you know, I'm, I'm slammed the next two weeks, but how about like, you know, in a month? Why don't you check your schedule, Bob, and get back to me? And would you suggest that people like yeah. ask about it or just you can? Be aware I mean, I think, yeah. I think, you know, if you have a friend that's avoiding you and yeah. you really care about the friendship, you could go like, hey, you know, have I offended you in some way? Have I done something? But, you know, you, you're an energy vampire when people don't want to hang out with you and don't yeah. want to spend time. People are not reaching out to you. But if you find people are calling you, reaching out, texting you, checking in on you, then you know you're an uplifting person. People want to be around you. It's a it's a very simple test, you know. You don't you don't have to run like a also self also self awareness. It sounds like self awareness. Is key. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how how do people feel after they leave you? You know, when they leave, are they smiling? Are they happy? Are they joyous? And if they are, then you've impacted their life positively. If they're exhausted, then then you're not. exhausted. <laughs> yeah, if they're quiet, yeah. they've really nothing to say. You know, yeah. then. But most people aren't aware of that part, right? Well, I mean, they, they aren't aware of the fact that they're an energy vampire. It's, it's a little hard to see. You really have to have a certain degree of self-awareness to be conscious of that. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Don Dapani. I think we can all learn to be a little more focused, intentional in our lives and, and our relationships. And, and you've definitely shared some great tips. So um, check out his story, uh, Energy Vampires. And uh, thank you for joining us uh, on the book launch. You're most welcome. All the best with the, with the launch. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I'm excited for the last segment here. I am joined by Sean Swarner, who is featured in the story Trough and Peak on page 83 of, of Friday Forward. So there's the post, there's the book. Sean uh, has an incredible story. He beat cancer twice before he turned 18, and despite losing functionality in one of his lungs, is one of the world's greatest endurance athletes. He's climbed the highest mountain on all seven continents, has been to the North and South Poles, and is the author of Keep Climbing and the subject of the documentary True North, the Sean Swarner story. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. And I know you're right back from a trip. So uh, why don't you start off telling us where you were? <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate it. Um, my body's dealing with a nine-hour time change and a 38-hour uh, uh, flight schedule. But I, I, I climbed. I'm, I'm not actually in Africa, but I was at this mountain just about, I think it was last week. Oh, so this right. is the highest mountain in Africa, Kilimanjaro. And I take a group up every uh, every year. But uh, I'm excited, man. Thanks a lot for having me here. I, I promise you I'll go on that trip. So so we're going to find out a time that works. So, Sean, what, what was it about climbing Everest as a cancer survivor that carried so much meaning for you? Oh, wow. That's, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, it going going back a little bit, um, as you mentioned, you know, I've been through two terminal cancers. I was given 14 days to live when I was 16 years old. So I have a a slightly skewed view on life. And what it really means, and I think uh, what it boils down to is, I'm I'm more afraid of not living than I am of dying, and I wanted to use the uh, Everest as literally the highest platform in the world to to give other people hope. You know, cancer is a global epidemic now, and I really wanted to give back to the community and and let people know that you know cancer doesn't necessarily have to be the end; it can be the beginning, and it can be amazing. I love how what you said is the opposite, I think, of how, how most people live, uh, you know, afraid of not dying rather than, than living. Look, you've, as you said, you've lived your life with a ton of mental and physical resiliency, overcoming incredible disadvantages. I, I'm curious, you know, there's this Navy SEALs uh, rule of 40% that when your mind tells you you're done, you're only 40% done. When was there a time when you really were done and you thought you could do more and, and you couldn't? Oh, geez. You know, it's, it's funny because I've, I've done the Hawaii Ironman as well. And people try to compare that to Everest <clears throat> in the other mountains. Like, oh, how was that? And in all honesty, I love the Hawaii Ironman. It was easy compared to everything else. Yeah. But I, I think there, there was a moment, not, not recently, where I was about ready to give up. And it was when I was 13 years old battling through my first cancer. It was fourth stage advanced, uh, advanced fourth stage Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I remember being 60 pounds overweight. I remember being bald from head to toe. And I remember being on my hands and knees in the shower weeping and, and just trying to figure out what life was all about because I was thinking what my neighbor was going through when he was getting ready for school the same day because what he was concerned about was completely different than what I was concerned about. You know, He was concerned about being popular. I was concerned about literally surviving. So I didn't know if I was going to make it to the next morning or not. So that's a good segue. I mean, we all understand, well, us, us mere mortals understand the <laughs> concept of, 
of mind over matter, but I'm not sure actually they know how to leverage that. So how do you, how do you get yourself? Do you do any priming? Like how do you get in the in the right mindset when you're fighting off fatigue, you're making the final push, or you're about to do something that you know is just going to be really really difficult, and you're gonna you're gonna want to quit. Wow, you know, look, look looking at it from a couple, of, you know how fast your mind thinks. So when you were talking, I was thinking, okay, this, 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 but at the end, you're like, you know, your mind's going to quit, and I'm thinking, okay, well, you embrace the suck. Like, you know, it's going to be a horrible experience. You know, it's going to be a very difficult experience, but knowing what you're getting into before it even happens, you're preparing yourself psychologically. And I think what also helps is I'm a huge believer in the mind body connection. And people do a lot of visualization, but there's, you know, they, they, they see themselves doing it. And as opposed to seeing it from um, the third person, kind of like a dream, you need to see it from your own eyes first. And then after that, you, you bring in some more senses. And the key factor that most people don't bring in, and the and key factor that, that they're missing, that, that missing link, is we're all human beings, right? We have emotions. Those are incredibly powerful motivators. So if you're visualizing yourself or you're seeing yourself successful, visualize and, and, and not just see yourself, but feel it. If you want to, th- if you, you, you might think yourself, you might think to yourself that you're successful, but until you actually have that feeling of success, it's not going to happen. You know, a perfect example, going up Kilimanjaro, where we leave at 11 p.m. midnight and, you know, you're, to, you're to, you leave to, to, to make the final summit. For the, for the, for, yeah, exactly. Yeah. For the summit, you know, all through the night, you just turn into a walking zombie, yeah. you know, you're exhausted. But what I do is I help people focus on the end result and how it feels to be there. You know, your, your, your body might want to quit, but if you have it here and you have it in your, yourself and you really have that connection to your emotions, nothing's going to get in your way. Yeah, it reminds me of, I'm sure you've heard that Michael Phelps story about his, go- you know, he used to visualize every stroke and, and how it counted out and then his goggles malfunction, you know, during the Olympics and he won a gold medal in that race and people asked him, he couldn't see and he said, I... I really had swam the whole race over and over and over in my mind and counted the strokes and knew the turn. I, I, I mean, there is a preparation element that goes into this that, that I think, right. That, that is probably more than people believe. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and for training purposes, you know, I, people ask me all the time, well, how do you train for something like that? I, I train so hard that when the actual event comes around, I'm thankful yeah. I don't have to train anymore. <laughs> I've heard that too. Uh, <laughs> I had a story about a guy who was teaching public speaking. And everyone was whining in practice. And he said, if you think this is hard, right. I, I hope this is harder than, than, than the real life. <laughs> so, so related to that, what sort of support systems and accountability, you know, do you use in your life to kind of stay on track? Uh, you know, one of the things is I have my own journal. It's, and it's called the Summit Challenge. But at the beginning of it, there's a list of values. Oh, you can't, you can't uh, see. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> they're, they're, they're very lucid values. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you, you have to use your imagination. Yeah. Um, they're a list of values. And I, every, every three weeks, I tap back into my personal core values. What means most to me? Yeah. You know, because there's so many distractions in the world. You, you turn on the news, it's negative. You, you wake up, you turn on the news. You, you're starting your day on a negative note. You're turning on the news, going to bed. You're ending your day on a negative note. But if you don't, can, I take away, don't turn on the news. That's the moral. Of that there story. you go. Right. Yeah. But focus on what means most to you and just yeah. keep reminding yourself of that and keep, keep focused on who you are. 
So Sean, tell people about these. You just got back from one. Um, tell people about these Kilimanjaro trips that you do and, and, and how they can get involved if they're interested. Because I, I told you, I promised I, I, I'd go on one and it's a pretty incredible manifestation. I think a lot of what you're talking about right now. Oh, absolutely. It, it's, it, it's a great, uh, it's a great analogy. You know, going up the mountain and, and anything in life, you're, you're, you're challenged all the time in life. But I help people through seven days going up the mountain. It's actually six days up and one day down. We just kind of circumnavigate the, the trip, uh, circumnavigate the mountain and go straight out. But anybody can join it. You know, what we do is it's a fundraiser for a cancer charity. We send a survivor for free. And it's that survivor's responsibility to raise funds for next year's survivor, kind of paying it forward. Um, which is kind of funny, you know, for, I have your book over here too. I was going to hold it up, but it probably would disappear. Disappear, um, yeah. <laughs> particularly, particularly since it's blue-green. Yeah. Exactly. Uh. <laughs> but it's it's a great analogy because you're you're going for a goal. But so many people, if you look at the entire mountain, you you get overwhelmed, you know? And if you break it down from ca- by camp to camp to camp to camp, just like just like going day by day by day in real life, anything's possible. So it's, it's a great way to leave the distractions of home behind, you know, no cell phones, no technology, no nothing, but then really focusing in and putting yourself in the moment, going towards your goal, you realize, Hey, you know, if, if I have fun doing what I'm doing, the byproduct happens to be the summit. So you, you, the summit becomes a byproduct of having fun and enjoying what you're really doing. And, and these are pretty novice hikers, right? Absolutely. There's, there's nothing tactical about it. You know, you don't need ice, uh, ice axes and crampons. I, I took, I've taken a 13 year old to a 70 year old. So you don't need any previous experience, but you probably don't want to whine about sleeping in a tent for a few days. Yeah. <laughs> need to know that. All right. Well, Sean, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, I hope people enjoy Friday forward your story. I know you you re, you help all of us rethink really what is possible and where, our, where our limits are. So you're, you're very much an inspiration. I, I definitely appreciate that. You know, and, and one thing on, in closing too is if you want to change who you are, just change what you do. Yeah. So difficult, so simple. <laughs> All right, Sean. Uh, hopefully, maybe next time I'll see you in person, it'll be, we'll, we'll, we'll be climbing. In, in Africa. I'll pick you up yeah, at the yeah. Kilimanjaro International Airport. All right. Perfect. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed those stories. If you want to hear more of the 52 stories in the Friday Forward book, you can go to www.fridayforwardbook.com or to robertglazer.com. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. 
There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.